0: Right, Philippians, and if you find chapter 3, um, Philippians and chapter 3, <clears throat> um, just going to read <coughs> verse 1 and, and verse 2. And Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I want to dispense with verse 1 very quickly because we're going to be back to that in later studies. There'll be a couple of times that we get back to that. You know, but basically, Paul, he says, look, to write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. And Paul says, to him, look, I go on and on and on about these things because the more you get the truth, the better. And that is why I go on and on and on. That is why at the moment at Lynn's place, apparently my voice is coming out of three different rooms at the same time with various tapes and that. You know, but it's good to go on and on and on about the truth. You know, and Paul says it's not irksome to me. And that is why anytime ask questions, that is what Bible teaching is for. You know, it's supposed to go on and on and on. And Paul says that is good. However, we'll be back to that verse um, in later studies. Now, uh, Tonight, we're going to be homing in purely on the next verse, right? Verse 2. And uh, if you're doing a verse-by-verse thing in the Bible, going through every verse of a book, then obviously, you get to verses that you can't skip. Um, Now, I don't want to skip any verses in the Bible. I want to do the whole lot. But I do guarantee that we're going to do a verse now that you will have never, ever heard anyone speak on. Because it's one of the avoided verses. And it's because of the implications of it. So let's actually look at it. Paul, right, he's writing, all right, to these Christians, and now he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, in order to understand that verse we've got to ask a question and it's in answering the question we're going to understand this verse. and the question that is the umbrella for what we're going to be doing tonight is this we're going to ask a question what was Paul's attitude to other Christians who propagated false teaching? now that is the question we're going to ask ourselves tonight now we've got to find out who he's referring to he says look out for the evil workers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now who are these people? This word mutilate is katatomai and it means a cutting off. All right? That's what the word means. Now as we're going to see, what he's referring to here are a group of Christians who are known as the circumcision party. Now the circumcision party were Jews who had found Jesus and they were Christians. All right. But this group of Christians maintained that the practices of the Old Testament and the Mosaic law, all right, were binding on Gentiles. They taught that it wasn't enough to have faith in Jesus, but that you had to become a Jew as well, all right? So for them, salvation was Jesus plus coming under obedience to the Mosaic Law and observing it, alright? Now, bear in mind as well uh, that for Jews at this time, anyone who was under the Mosaic Law was also under the tradition of the elders, alright? So the point is that these guys, what they were saying was, look, okay, it's not enough to be following Jesus. To follow Jesus means that you've got to become a Jew. So you've got to put yourself under the Old Testament Mosaic Law, You've got to stop being Gentiles, become a proselyte. That was the name for someone who switched over to to, um, the Jewish faith. And of course the first thing they said that you had to do was to get circumcised. Because it was circumcision that made a Jew. So these were a group of saved men, Christians, all right? They were Jews who were converted, but they were maintaining that Gentiles who became Christians had to also become Judaizers. They had to put themselves under the authority of the Old Testament Mosaic Law, and circumcision was the first step. Hence, they were known as the Circumcision Party. All right. Because they would have believed in baptizing you, certainly, but they want to get you circumcised as well. All right, So that is who Paul is talking about. Now throughout tonight, keep your finger in Philippians here, but let's actually see these guys. Go to Acts 15. Let's see these guys in action and let's see what happens when they come across Paul. Acts 15, we're going to read a lot of Acts 15, but I'll read it out to you, okay? But in Acts 15, uh, now this, if you're interested, is uh, Antioch in Syria, all right? You know, Paul and his mates have got to Antioch in Syria. And in Acts 15, from verse 1, we read this, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, and this will be Gentiles, alright, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, alright? So here is the circumcision party in action, they've come amongst Gentiles, who are Christians, and they're saying, but you've got to be circumcised, you've got to come under the law of Moses, alright? Um, Now in verse 2, and when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Right, now then, we've got to ask a question. Paul here is out on his travels, right? And he meets other Christians out on their travels, okay? And here, he meets some men who were Christian teachers, they were Bible teachers. He meets these men who were giving Christians false teaching. Now, the question we've got to ask is this, was Paul for unity at any cost? Was the attitude of Paul, oh well it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, we're all Christians, let's just get on, it doesn't matter about the teaching, was that the attitude that Paul took? Well, no it wasn't, because Paul had it out with these guys, it says that he and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate, and more than that, Paul was so burdened, about this false teaching that he said right I'm not having this I'm gonna go to the Jerusalem church and I'm gonna get this official I'm gonna get these guys dealt with alright and Paul pursues it right to the Apostles in the Jerusalem church alright Let's just read through it. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia, blah, blah, blah. In verse four, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them, either the Gentiles, and to charge them to keep the law of Moses, all right? So what Paul does, all right? up to Jerusalem, fast as he can. He says, I want this dealt with. Remember, there was no Bible. The New Testament was in process of being written. So Paul says, I want this dealt with once and for all. Okay. So he goes to Peter and James, all the others in the Jerusalem church. They were Jews just like him. And lo and behold, who are there more members of the circumcision party? More Christians, they were everywhere. It was a false teaching that was spreading out wherever Christians went. There were Christians who were teaching this falseness, that Gentiles had to become uh, Jews, okay? Now then, what we're going to see is this. We're going to see a contest now. There's a big debate, okay? Now then, what you've got is this. First of all, in the red corner, Paul the Apostle, right. Now then, what was the corner that Paul was fighting here? Alright? He was maintaining that the law, the Mosaic law, has been superseded because it's done its job. Alright? As soon as Jesus came, the law had done its job. The Mosaic law, Paul argued, was never there to save anyone, but it was simply there to reveal sin and to reveal the hopelessness of sinners to resolve their sin problem. Now we've got a great deal of info about how Paul felt about this and Paul's argument in Romans is quite simply this, alright, now we're not going to go through Romans but I'm just saying what Paul would have been his point of view in the debate that's going on, alright, it was of this Paul's argument in Romans and Galatians as well is this the law, the Mosaic law, he argues, was of God of course it was and therefore it was good it was good because it was from God and its purpose was to reveal sin. The law is a straight line and if you put something up against a straight line, if it's bent, it reveals it. And that is what the law was there for. The law showed God's righteousness and therefore revealed sin. And Paul said that was its job and it did it well. But Paul argues, but if you expect something to produce a result it was never designed to get, then everything goes wrong. For instance, you cannot get BBC2 on our microwave oven. (laughs) See, you sit there all day, twiddle that knob, you won't get BBC2 on our microwave oven. Now, does that mean that we've got a Duff microwave oven? Did we get the wrong one? No, of course we didn't. There's nothing wrong with our microwave oven. It wasn't designed to pick up BBC2. It's a microwave, not a TV set. And Paul's argument was, look, the law was brilliant, it was of God, it was there to reveal sin. But, because it wasn't designed to save anyone, and of course it wasn't, if you expect the law to save, if you expect the Mosaic law to do something God never intended, then obviously it all goes wrong. And of course only faith in Jesus can save. So these guys were faffing around with the Mosaic law when they didn't need to because Jesus had come. And Paul's argument in Romans to the Jews was this. Look, God revealed that we were justified by faith apart from the law. Nothing to do with the law. He said God revealed that to Abraham. And Abraham received that from the Lord before Moses was even born and the law was even around. So Paul demonstrates to them that the Mosaic law was never intended by God to be the vehicle by which men and women are saved. It was never designed to be the means whereby the sin problem was solved. It merely helped to reveal that there was a sin problem. Now because Jesus and faith in him was the answer to the sin problem, and because Jesus was now come, Therefore, the law has now just fallen away. It's been superseded. It's done its job and now it's ended. Alright? The law was overtaken by the grace of God when Jesus died on the cross. Therefore, Paul's argument throughout the Bible is this. We, as Christians, are not under law. Why not? The law was never designed to save anyone. The law was there to show us we were sinners. Well, if we're Christians, we know we're sinners or we wouldn't be Christians. So we are not under the law, we are under grace. Our salvation has been received as a free gift from the Lord. Therefore, Paul argues, the Mosaic law is irrelevant to a Christian, in this respect, whether that Christian is a Jew or a Gentile. So that is Paul arguing in the red corner, and all the apostles and the elders, everyone else, this great assembly, they're there. you know, think of it like, you know, a courtroom. And Paul rises and that's his argument, okay. Right, now in the blue corner, in the blue corner is the circumcision party, Christians, let's read verse five again. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees. Now notice that we're talking about believers here. We're talking about brothers and sisters in the Lord, alright? But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees, blah 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 rose up and said, and this is their argument, it is necessary to circumcise them that is the Gentiles and to charge them to keep the law of Moses. So you can't have two more diametrically opposed arguments than this, okay? So then Chapter six, uh, sorry, verse six, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The debate was on, all right? Paul does his bit, the circumcision party does their bit. Now then, what was the result? Who was right? Who was declared to be speaking God's word? And who was declared to be in error? Okay, well, two people rise now to speak. One is Peter and one is James. Alright? Now, let's look at Peter first. Peter, he starts in verse 7. After there had been much debate, they really thrashed this one out. Peter rose and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them and gave them the Holy Spirit as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Right, whose side is Peter on? He's on Paul's side, isn't he? And he's saying to the circumcision party, you're wrong. He said, because the Mosaic law never helps us anyway. (laughs) To get saved, did it? So, Peter says the circumcision party are wrong. Okay, now then. um, If you go down into verse 13, okay, we now get James speaking, alright? And James says this, after they finished speaking, James replied, brethren, listen to me. Simeon, he's referring here to Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this the words of the prophets agree, blah, blah, blah. Go down into verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. See, the circumcision party were troublemakers. False teaching is troublemaking, all right? He says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Now, listen to this. But should write to them to abstain from the pollution of idols and from unchastity, or being immoral, and from what is strangled and from blood, all right? So then, that is the proclamation of James. Whose side is he on? He again is on Paul's side because, of course, Paul was right. The circumcision party were wrong and Paul said, right, I'm going to have this out in public. I'm going to get it universally known that the circumcision party are giving false teaching. I'm going to expose them as false teachers. Christians, yes, but they're troubling the brethren, all right, and putting burdens on them. And Paul says, I'm not going to have that. Now then, let's go down into verse 22 and see what the outcome of this is, and we'll see that it's a letter. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Bar-Sabbath, and Silas, leading men among the brethren, with the following letter. All right, now here's an epistle in the Acts of the Apostles, all right, and it's from the elders and the apostles (laughs) at the Church of Jerusalem. And it's written to the Gentiles. And it says, The brethren, both the apostles and the elders, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greeting. Since we have heard that some persons from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, It has seemed good to us, in assembly, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, blah, 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 now verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, and these are the things that James outlined, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled, and from unchastity. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So, the verdict is universally the circumcision party are giving out false teaching, alright? Now then, what the Christians say to the Gentile Christians is simply this, they are to refrain from idols, from being immoral, they're to abstain from strangled animals and eating blood. Now they're the same, all right, because if you killed something and you ate it and you didn't cut its throat, it, you know, the blood was in there. So in effect, they're told to stay away from idols, unchastity and eating blood, all right. Now then, what we're going to see here is that this is put on the Gentiles. This actually applies to us. (coughs) But the point is, they're only imposing here on the Gentiles what God had already required of people way back before Israel even existed. Right back at the beginning of time. For instance, idolatry. From the word go, Adam and Eve knew that there was one true God, from the word go. And that to turn away from Him was wrong. That was covered through the Gentiles. You see, That wasn't a Mosaic law thing goes right back to the very first man and woman. Unchastity, it's way back then. Husband and wife. That's the way it was. Adam and Eve, husband and wife. Unchastity was dealt with in Genesis chapter three, chapter two and chapter three. Can you see? So then, therefore, all that they're saying is that the Gentiles are bound by the Old Testament prior. To the law of Moses. See? All that was covered. The blood thing, just, just go to Genesis chapter 4. <laughs> Genesis chapter 4. Now, this is a covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. But remember, Noah, he was a Gentile. This is before the Jews came into being. So, anything that was said to the Gentiles is binding on us, even if it's in the Old Testament. And uh, in Genesis 9 and verse 4, we have, "...only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood." And we're bound by that today. It is wrong to eat meat out of flesh where the animal that's been killed hasn't had its blood drained. Now, it's just the fact today that, uh, you know, In the civilized world, all meat has been drained of blood, is he? In the black pudding. In the black pudding, yeah. stay away from black pudding, that is unbiblical. That is eating blood, the very thing that we're (laughs) commanded not to do. So the point is that what they do here is that they simply say to the Gentiles, what you have to make sure you're obedient to is what God put in the Old Testament before the law of Moses. The main point is that they are completely free of the Law of Moses, the very thing that the Circumcision Party was saying that Gentiles had to submit to. So therefore, we've got to ask, what about us today then, all right? Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us here. The Mosaic Law was a covenant between God and Israel. Firstly, it never, ever applied to Gentiles anyway. It was nothing to do with the Gentiles. It was a covenant between God and Israel. Gentiles were never, ever under the law of Moses. My insurance for our car doesn't include you. Because that's our name on the policy, not yours. An insurance policy is binding on named parties. If you're not in my motor insurance as a named party, my motor insurance is not binding on you. And the Gentiles were not bound by the law of Moses because the law of Moses was a covenant between God and Israel. Not the Gentiles. So that's the first thing. Gentiles were never ever bound by the law of Moses. Therefore, I, as a Gentile, am completely free of the law of Moses. But now we've got to ask the question, right, but what about a converted Jew? We've established that us Gentiles, it don't apply to us, we're not Jews. But where does it leave a converted Jew? Is it binding on them? Well, if you go to Galatians, Galatians in chapter 3, And we'll start reading from verse 23. Paul says, Before faith came, we were confined under the law, kept under restraint until faith should be revealed, so that the law was our custodian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. And, and Paul was a Jew. He's a Jew writing this. Um, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Can you see? There's no distinction. A converted Jew is no longer under the custodianship of the Mosaic law. When a Jew becomes a Christian, they are set free from the law. Uh, Go over to chapter 4 chapter 4 and verse 4 But when the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law Now to redeem means to buy out of, it means to buy, you know, to buy out of a slave market You could redeem a slave, if, if there was a slave market, <laughs> there was a slave and he was for sale Now if you bought him specifically to set him free, he's free He's not a slave anymore, and that's what Jesus did. He's bought Israel and the Jews out from under the slavery of the law. So there we see it again. Jews who become Christians are no longer under the Mosaic law. Uh, Just go back into Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and in verse 14. Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And that was an epistle written universally to any Christian, whether Jew or Gentile, who cared to read it. So, the point is, okay, we as Gentiles were never under the law anyway, never applied to us. It's between God and Israel. But as soon as a Jew becomes a Christian, they too are set free from any obligation under the Mosaic law, whatsoever. Alright. So therefore, we are free. All of us, converted Jews as well, free from the law. It no longer has anything to do with us. We are not bound by the Old Testament Mosaic law. So, that raises the question, so what are we bound by? Right, we're abo- we're bound by the above-mentioned pre-Mosaic Law stuff Immoral, idols, blood We're bound by that and everything in the New Covenant Everything in the New Testament That is what we're bound by Not the Old Covenant We are bound by the New One Because we're Christians and that covenant, where named parties in it. It's the new covenant that applies to us and not the old one. And remember, I'm showing you all this because the circumcision party was saying that Gentile Christians had to come under the law and Paul saying no they do not okay let me illustrate this in regards to the 10 commandments all right you know now don't take a sharp intake of breath too quickly let me finish what i'm going to start saying you and i and converted jews are in no way bound by the 10 commandments they are utterly irrelevant to us i do not have to live in obedience to the 10 commandments in any way at all why not The Ten Commandments are in a covenant between God and Israel that I was never part of and that a converted Jew is set free from. So, the Ten Commandments do not apply to us. So, therefore, is it okay to steal? Well, no, of course it's not okay to steal. But it's not okay to steal because that is in the New Covenant. Are you getting the point? It's in the New Covenant. That is why I must not steal. Now, in regards to the Ten Commandments, okay, nine of them are restated as part of the New Covenant and therefore are binding on us. But not because they're the Ten Commandments of the Mosaic Law. That's irrelevant, nothing to do with this. But because they're restated, nine of them, in the New Covenant, they, you know, because they're in the New Covenant, they are therefore binding on us, but not because they were in the Old One. Let's, let's just go through it, all right? Very, very quickly, okay? I'll go through the Ten Commandments with you and show this restatement in the New Covenant, okay? Now then, the first one is, Thou shalt have no other gods beside me. Well, we've already seen that idolatry was dealt with in Genesis, but just go to 1 Corinthians 8. Remember, if it's in the New Covenant, it's binding on us. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and start from verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll start reading from verse 4. Hence, as the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many laws, yet there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist and through whom we exist. Now there you have it, there is one God. So therefore idolatry is covered in the New Testament. You and I as Christians, we are bound to have nothing to do with idols. Now then, the second commandment is thou shalt not worship any graven image. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Is this one binding on us? Are we free to worship graven images? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, shun the worship of idols. And obviously, the thing about an idol, it's a graven thing, it's there, a representation of a God. So therefore, the first two of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Covenant. Therefore, they're binding on us. Now, the third of the Ten Commandments is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Go over to James, the epistle of James. James chapter 2. And verse 7. And James says, Is it not they who blaspheme that honourable name by which you are called? He's referring to people that the Christians are best staying away from. And he says, Is it not they who blaspheme that honourable name by which you're called? And he's saying, Stay away from them because they blaspheme the name of God. You see, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. And here in the New Covenant, it's a bad thing have nothing to do with it. So yes, commandment number three is binding on us. Now we're going to skip number four, for the time being. We're going to go to number five. Honour thy father and mother. Ephesians 6. If it's special interest this, to Chris and Matt. Ephesians, <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 and the first two verses. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. So there again, can you see that it's it's in the new covenant. It's carried over. It's restated. And it's binding on us because it's in the new covenant. Not because it was in the old one. Number 6. Thou shalt not kill or... Just one thing, in the Hebrew, alright, the fifth, the sixth commandment is not, thou shalt not kill. For heaven's sake, the Old Testament teaches capital punishment. It's the Hebrew word for murder, premeditated murder or unlawful killing, alright. Thou shalt not murder, okay. Go to 1 Peter. Because it's important, isn't it? Are, are we free to murder? I want to know this. This is relevant to how I feel about people sometimes. I've got to know how far I can go and still be in fellowship. 1 Peter 4 verse 15. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or a wrongdoer, or a mischief-maker, They're quite clearly a commandment to Christians. Murder is not an option for us. We are bound by the Sixth Commandment, but not because it's in the Ten Commandments, (laughs) but because it's part of the New Covenant. Commit adultery, alright? Hebrews 13 verse 4, and it simply says, make sure the marriage bed is not defiled. Let's actually see Hebrews, we'll we'll turn to them all. Hebrews, chapter 13 verse 4, let marriage be held in honour among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the immoral and the adulterous. So therefore, we're not free to be unchaste, because it's in the New Covenant, and that one was also in the, uh, you know, way back in the Genesis thing. Steal, steal, commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter four and verse 28, and it says this, let the thief no longer steal. There it is, in the New Covenant. Binding on us. All right. Number nine. Commandment number nine. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Right. Belt across to Colossians. Colossians 3, verse 8. He says, But now put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and foul talk from your mouth, seeing that you have put off. Uh, Do not lie to one another. So bear false witness, slander. Paul says, Put it off. So therefore we are bound not to slander, because it's repeated in the New Covenant. Now then, the tenth one, thou shalt not covet, okay, still in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, covetousness, which is idolatry. So there you have it, the Tenth Commandment restated in the Old Testament. But, my goodness, those nine are the only ones that are. Nothing else in the Mosaic Law is carried over into the New Covenant. Of the entire Mosaic Law, those nine things are the only thing that bind us and relate to us. But not because they're in the Ten Commandments, but simply because they're repeated in the New Covenant. Now then, did you notice that number four was missing? the Sabbath law. Now, why haven't I dealt with the Sabbath law? Well, I'm going to, And but the only thing is, I've got to tell you, the Sabbath law is not anywhere in the New Covenant repeated. The Sabbath law is not binding on us. In fact, quite to the contrary. Not only will you not find that the Sabbath isn't repeated in the New Covenant, but it is actually specifically taught against. Go to Colossians. Well, you should still be in Colossians, alright? Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. And Paul says, Therefore, now remember, at no point in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, is there one verse that tells us to observe the Sabbath. Not one. Alright? But there's this. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These are only a shadow of what is to come. So, what does the Bible teach about having special days? Well here, Paul says, you know, there aren't any special days. Don't let people tell you off if you're not observing special days. Uh, go over into, uh, back into Romans, Romans 14. Verse 5, Paul says, One man esteems one day as better than another while another man esteems all days alike. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it in honour of the Lord. He also who eats, eats in honour of the Lord. Blah, blah, blah. So what Paul is saying here, look, there is no Sabbath. But it's one of those things, he says, if it's such a big deal to you, fine, go ahead, but don't pass judgement on anyone else. But you won't find anywhere in the Bible where Paul says, look, if being immoral is okay for you, why don't you go ahead and be immoral, but just leave other people who aren't immoral alone? No, that's an absolute. But here, any questions of special days, Paul says, look, there aren't any special days, but as a concession, it's up to each one of you in your own conscience, all right? So that's one to not fall out about. If people want to believe in a Sabbath, let them. That's not something to fall out about. Like vegetarianism. Vegetarianism is clearly unbiblical. But the teaching of the Bible is that if someone's got a weak conscience, for heaven's sake, don't argue about it. Just concentrate on getting on with them. So, therefore, we're seeing that the Sabbath law is not in any way at all repeated. Okay. So, what have we seen? We have seen that the Mosaic law is not binding on Christians, be they Gentile or Jews. Now then, the circumcision party, wanted to put Christians into a straitjacket of rules and regulations and practices which God didn't want them put into. That was their false teaching. This false teaching that Paul was so up in the air about and would not tolerate was simply Christian teachers who were telling believers that they had to be subject to teachings, practices and rules which were not binding on them from the Word of God. That and that alone is why Paul was sharp in the air. Now, question, was he for unity? Was Paul's attitude, well, look, for heaven's sake, we're Christians. We've got to get on. Let's, you know, cover it up. You know, let's let's not draw attention to it. Let's let's just be one. Was that Paul's attitude? No, it was not. He fought them right to the top. He fought them all the way to Jerusalem, and then called them dogs, and I'll explain to you why he did that later. Paul was not for unity at any cost, and it's for this reason. You see, when this thing about Christian unity, and it's very big today, the truth is that it's those who hold to false doctrine who are causing the disunity. It's the false teachings and practices that cause disunity in the body of Christ, not the Christians who refuse to compromise. Go into Galatians and I'll show you how this works. Because remember, we're set today against the background of unity, 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 ecumenical, ecumenical. Let's all get together, don't worry about the truth, don't worry about where we disagree, let's all just get together. And I'm showing you that that was not Paul's attitude, and now I'm going to show you why. Alright, okay. Now in Galatians 2 verse 11, uh, Paul talks about a, a little episode in his life. And it's to do with Peter. Here, Cephas is the Apostle Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For, uh, certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. Sorry, before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely, so that, even the rest, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their insincerity. And the Greek word there is hypocrisy. So what Paul is saying, he says, look, Jesus lives in you. He's saying, right, so let Jesus come out. Work at it. Put a bit of effort into it. And the more you deny yourself the more Jesus, and therefore this new nature, is going to come through. And you will find that being saved from the power of sin, bit by bit, starts to become an actual reality in your experience. If you just go to John 14, though, because obviously I've been homing in on the fact that uh, Paul here is reminding them that Jesus lives in in them. And I just want to show you very quickly that that's only a bit of the truth you find John 14, we can see from what Paul is saying that he's reminding of the fact that Jesus lives in them. Alright, now in, in John 14, let's just read verse 15, and uh, 15 to 17. And Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and that ha- that's how you know if you love Jesus. It's not a feeling. It's not a feeling. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of the will, to quote Don Francisco. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counsellor, defence lawyer, all right, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So here Jesus is saying to the disciples, look, the Holy Spirit is going to be in you. And indeed, because we're born again, he is. So it's not just that Jesus lives in us, the Holy Spirit lives in us as well. Now then, still in John 14, just go on to verse 23. And Jesus says this, If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So what are we seeing? Is it just that Jesus lives in us? No. Jesus lives in us and the Holy Spirit lives in us and here we see the Father lives in us. The triune God in his entirety lives in each one of us. And Paul says, right, work out your own salvation. He said, that's your salvation. God is my salvation. The triune God lives in you. So Paul says, right, let him out. Work at letting God out in your life. But we've got to work at getting ourselves out of the way. You see, that's the point. That's the point. Jesus lives in us. The Father lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. You think, no problem. Well, there is a problem. Us, we're in the way. And we have to be removed in order for the life of God to come out of us. And that is the ongoing following Jesus and living in obedience to the scripture. Because if you do, you'll bit by bit be killing yourself off. That's fundamentally what it boils down to. If you live in obedience to the Bible, your sinful nature is gonna be being cut off at every point. Because when you live according to the teaching of the Bible, it gives no room for your sinful nature. Can you see? John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. This is it, obedience to the Bible Enables the Lord to work in us in such a way that he's literally killing us off. The old nature is getting killed off bit by bit by bit, and the new nature is coming through more and more and more. Now, when Paul has said this, he says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll come on to that in a moment. And he says, For God is at work in you. All right, for God is at work in you. Now, what does he say God is doing in you? What is this work that God is doing in you? Well, it's this. He says God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, there are always two things. First of all, you make up your mind and then you do it. All right? So before anything gets done, you decide to do it and then it gets done. All right? Now, what Paul is saying, the nature of this work that God is doing in you is that he's making up your mind and then he's going to make sure that you do it. God is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. God is not only going to enable you to do it; He's going to enable you to have the will to do it. Can you see the point? God is at work in you, both to will and to work um, for His good pleasure. Now, this thing about will—now, does this mean we haven't got free will? I was saying to Julian, you know, today that oh, you know, wouldn't life be simpler if God overrode our free will? But but life is so complicated because He doesn't. You know, he won't. He respects us too much. We won't be human beings. We've got free will. God's got free will. We've got free will. That's just the way it is. But what we're seeing here is that if we genuinely decide by an act of the will to go with Jesus at any point, then God will reinforce (coughs) and strengthen that act of the will that we've taken. Now, can you see the point there? God is at work in us to will. If I say, yes, Jesus, I'm going with what you want here, All right. then no matter how tough it gets, when I want to back out, and say, oh no, this is too tough for me, if my will is set on doing God's will, then God will strengthen that resolve that I've got. is That's the only explanation I've got for how I'm still a Christian after 20 years. It honestly is. Or not necessarily still a, you know, a Christian, but you know, after 20 years of going the way God has led me. It's because God stiffens that resolve. He strengthens it, all right? And often, in following the Lord, what we need to do is is that we need just every now and then say, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever you want. But Lord, I'm also willing that when I'm not willing, that you make me willing. Is he? So God is at work to will. God is working on your will. And it's a twofold thing. When your will is right, 100% with God, and remember Jesus himself prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. In any issue, anything that God requires of you, if you are genuinely saying, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, then God will strengthen that will. He'll strengthen your will. So you can keep going where normally you couldn't. He'll reinforce it. And then the second aspect of it is that all of us, we come to points where we're not willing. Now then, often, often, many Christians, that's when they fall away. Or they just become, you know, sort of like lukewarm Christians, don't they? They're doing great, and then God requires something of them, they're not willing to give. is he? God goes too far. Lord, you're gone too far now, all right? Now then, obviously, if you're really not willing, you can fall away. And a lot of people do. We've seen that here, haven't we? You know, we've seen Christians have gone on with the Lord, and then God requires something of them. They're not willing, and so they're out of it, aren't they? That is the way God works. However, if your heart is really right with God, and you've really said, Lord, I know that there are going to be times when what you want of me, I'm not willing to give. Lord, when that happens, I am willing for you to make me willing. All right? So he'll bash you (laughs) until you're willing. Easy. So God is at work in us, one, to will, and also to work, to work. So God wills in us, and he works in us. So... But here in the Greek, this, this verb to work is energio, energio. And it's the word we get energy from if you energize something. And what Paul is saying is that God will energize our genuine effort. Here's the point. If that effort is genuine because you love the Lord, God will energize that, you know, all that you're trying to do. That effort to strive after holiness. Um, you know, think of it, I mean, you know, I don't do this often, but you know, I mean, to get from the Enterprise down to the planet Vulcan, you've got to energize, haven't you? You see? And the power comes through and down they go in the transporter, you see, energize. And the point is, our faithfulness, if we're faithful and say, I am going to be obedient to the Lord, then our faithfulness will be energized and the power will come through. And Jesus will start to live through you in different areas of your life. But our motive must be, for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That must be the motive. Um, It's quite possible, because I've done this many, many times, to really put effort into serving the Lord. And expect God to energise it when your real motive is that, won't people think I'm spiritual? (laughs) Well, that won't wash, can you see? God won't energize that, he'll just leave you to it. You know, he'll just leave you to it. Our effort will only be energized by God if our motive in that effort is for his good pleasure. We're doing it for him. We're not doing it for someone else. We're not doing it for our own ego, we're doing it for him. And where our motives are wrong, he'll bash you. <laughs> God bashes me a lot, this is why it works. It's discipline, isn't it? All right. But can you see the point of what, God is, uh, of what Paul is actually saying here? Now then, I've got to say more about the bashing here. Because why, when he says, work out your own salvation, for God is working you, blah, 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 why does Paul put in the middle with fear and trembling. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, why on earth does he do that? If you keep keep your finger in Philippians, but just go back into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's see this, this fear and trembling in Paul's life. And And Paul says, I was with you... In weakness and in much fear and trembling paul he didn't only tell the Philippians to live in fear and trembling, Paul was living his own life in fear and trembling. Now, what is this fear and trembling? Go to one, John it's a well. <laughs> you can well you yeah. You can if you like, but of course we're going to keep going back to Philippians. But yes, if you want to take your finger out of Philippians, you certainly can. 1 John 4, all right. we're asking, why does Paul talk about fear and trembling? And why did Paul live in fear and trembling? Um, 1 John 4, verse 17. He says, In this is love perfected with us, that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Incidentally, there's John saying it. As he is... So are we in this world. You know, John's saying, you know what Jesus was like because you've read my gospel. Right, let's us be like him as well. That's exactly the point we're seeing in Paul, isn't it? Jesus is in you, so be like him. Let him out. But he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So if perfect love casts out fear, why on earth is Paul saying here, um, you know that that you know you people make sure that you're working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Well, in Proverbs 1 verse 7, don't turn to it. All right, the proverb there is that the beginning, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord and serving the Lord with fear and trembling. It's not talking about, you know, sort of like the kind of, um, you know, sort of like terror when you've, or the fear and trembling when you've just read, you know, Children of the Corn. If you think, oh, are they coming to get me? You know, a Stephen King novel. It's not that kind of terror and fear at all. It's the reverential fear of God. What the Bible means by this is, is holding him in awe. It's refusing to play games with him because he is god you see what i mean um i mean think of if you were at a good school and if you were brought up well then when you were about say 13 14 15 you were in fear and trembling of your headmaster is it it's that sort of thing knowing if i step over the line i'm gonna get it I'm going to get it. I'm going to be sorted. That is what the Bible means by serving God in fear and trembling. We've seen that the way the Lord feels about us is intimate tenderness and love. We saw this two or three studies ago when we were doing chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Yeah, Jesus is intimate tenderness and love. He'll never hurt us. That's true. He's our closest friend. But here's the point. If you mess with him, then watch out. You see, if we mess with him, he is going to sort us. Now, not loss of salvation, nothing to do with that at all. But if we get out of order, then God is going to sort us down here, and we're going to get sorted out, you see. God is a perfect loving father, all right? But a perfect loving father is not afraid to take hold of the wooden spoon, or whatever it might be, and lay into one of his children's backsides, if it is so needed. Here's that. You know, it's sort of like we often talk about the blessing of the laying on of hands. Well, I mean, it's what I call the laying on of hands at the other end. Um, And God will lay holy hands on you at the other end, if need be. Can you see? God will sort us out, because a father is going to discipline his children, and he's going to draw lines. And if we go over those lines, then he is going to be after us. Can you see the point? We cannot start messing with God. God is not mocked. We will reap exactly what we sow. And that's what Paul says when he writes to the Galatian Christians. He says you can be all holy, you can be all spiritual, you can be all charismatic, you have all saints even here. But he says God is not mocked. If you as a Christian get up to no good, God is going to sort you. You will reap exactly what you sow. And so, Paul, when he writes to the Philippians, he says, That is why you've got to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This isn't something, oh, oh yeah, well, let's get on with it. We are talking about a holy God who loves us very much, who will only do things for our own good. But then we're talking about a holy God who knows that sometimes for our own good, he's got to bash us. (laughs) Is he? as ultimately every good father has to do with his children when they get out of order. And that is why there, Paul says, look, work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. He says, work out what God has worked into you. He says, but do it with fear and trembling, because he says in the process, if you start taking the mick, then God will get the wooden spoon out. All right. So so remember, it is God that we're dealing with. And the fact that he's our closest friend, the fact that he's tender and loving towards us. Let's not for one moment rest on our laurels and say, well, therefore, because he loves me, it doesn't matter what I'm like. Because it does. And it's because God loves us so much. That he's desperately concerned about what we're like. And he will deal with us if we get out of order. So basically, in those verses, what Paul is saying, look. He says, work out your own salvation. No one else can do it for you. Leaders can't. Your friends can't. We can all help each other. Fellowship is an absolutely essential part of it. But finally, one way or the other, every individual Christian has got to work out their own salvation for themselves. And one of the things that we're seeing here, and I'm delighted to see it here, is the way that if there are people who, in the final analysis, are along for the ride, they don't last very long. And I'm thrilled about that. Because you'll get nowhere if you're just along for the ride. Paul says you've got to be stuck in to your own Christian life, 100%. Now, in verse 14, Paul then says, right, now, what are the practicalities of this? He's already given a load that we've seen in previous studies. But in verse 14, he now takes it further and he says, look, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. All right? That you may be blameless and innocent... Children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a libation, you know, Paul's facing death, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. But verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling and questioning. You know, here are commandments. He says, this is part of working out your own salvation. All right. Now then, first of all, grumbling. Do all things without grumbling, or more accurately, in the Greek, murmuring. Murmuring. Do all things without murmuring. Now then, this Greek word, murmuring, is gonguzmos. That's the word, gonguzmos. And it means muttering. 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 To mutter. To mutter. Or possibly Twitter, whatever way you want to view it. All right. Now then, what we've got here is that in the Greek, it's what's called an onomatopoeic word. Now, I'll explain that. If you have a word that is onomatopoeic, it's a word that sounds like the thing it's describing. For instance, tinkling. Tinkling. That is an onomatopoeic word. It sounds like the thing it's describing. Um, A symbol going... Crash, that is an onomatopoeic word. Indeed, the English word mutter is onomatopoeic. It sounds like the thing it's describing. Mutter, 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 mutter. See? Muttering is what it actually means. And it denotes... It denotes the saying of something negative or destructive. This is what it means in the Greek. The saying of something negative or destructive in a low tone, secretively in private, rather than loudly, openly in public. Now that is what the Greek word means. That is murmuring. Now then, let me tell you, we're back to the infamous phone calls here, aren't we? When the phones start going, Oh, matter, 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 matter. Do you know Robert matter, 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 matter? And then matter, 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 Beresford matter, matter, matter. And the phones start going. You see, these are the people who just aren't happy. They're, they're not happy. You see, that they mutter, they're murmuring. They're never happy. And you usually find, in fact, you find 99% of the time that what they're unhappy about is how they've been treated. This Greek word, gonguzmos, all right, it means a mutter, but there's an actual Greek word that we get from this, and it's gong. We get the word gong which is another onomatopoeic word, gong, all right? And I'm not going to tell the joke that you're all thinking of, all right? Um, (laughs) Right, oh, if you're not thinking about it, no problem. And you'll remember in 1 Corinthians and chapter 13, Paul talks about love. You know, he's dealing with all the gifts of the Spirit, all right? And then he talks about love. And he says, "If, if, if I speak in tongues and have not love, he says, I'm a crashing gong. and what Paul's doing there is he's saying look you can be as spiritual as the light but if you haven't got love it's a waste of time Tongues without love, waste of time. Healing without love, waste of time. Word of knowledge without love, waste of time. Bible teaching without love, waste of time. Visions of rice puddings without love, absolute waste of time. <laughs> A rather loose translation, I grant you, you see. And, and of course, the point is that when you've got, okay, these people, they're, they're going around, and, and as I say, it's mutter, 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 all right? It is the exact opposite of love. This muttering is always done in the dark. It's always, it's, it's, it's the whispering campaigners, isn't it? And it's all done in the dark. It's all done furtively. Very, very furtively. And you remember that last week we saw that to be in fellowship, in 1 John, it, it talks about light. If we, if we live in the light, as he is in the light, and muttering and all this discontent and all this chagrin, that goes about is always done in the dark and you will usually find that it is people who have got gripes in regards to themselves they're not happy about this they're not happy about that I've been treated badly why aren't I getting this why aren't I being looked after better is it and that is what Paul here is talking about he says murmuring he says put it away because after all if we thought about ourselves less would we not murmur less Will we not be all a lot more satisfied if we didn't think about ourselves so much? And to stop thinking about ourselves is half of what Paul is dealing with in this whole issue. Forget about yourselves, he's saying. Think on Jesus and think on the needs of other people. And it's like, in regards here, because we don't want murmuring and muttering in this fellowship, we want everything out in the open. And, uh, and we've said it before, but all I can do is to say it again until eventually it registers. If someone's got something to say, then come to Robert and I and say it. And say it. You know... But there is a new rule that we're going to introduce, all right? And the basic rule is this, and this is based on unfortunate experience of the last few weeks. In future, if anyone comes to Robert or myself, okay, um, and there's something they want to say, and and, and they're angry, and they they give us a blasting, all right? Then what we're going to do is to say, now, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa you might well have a good point. What you're going to say may be important for us to hear, and there may be things to be put right. But we want you to go away and calm down and repent of getting all up in the air. It's called spiritual parasending, all right? Go away and land, and then when you can come back controlled with love in your heart and the grace of the Lord, then tell us. Now, we put this into practice a little while ago and we lost a load of people. But my goodness, that is what we're going to do. In James, it says, The anger of man does not work the righteousness of God. It's as simple as that. And even if you've got something that you think is something that genuinely is wrong and needs putting right, it is no use pitching into us. Because the very fact that there's anger flying around negates the whole thing. So, you know when people come in and want to blast us and that does happen sometimes because they just want to blast us all right we're not going to be blasted anymore we're going to say go away and come back and see us next week when you're nice and calm and once you've done that then we will talk Here's he, and so paul says look do everything without murmuring all right he says that Get that away from you completely. All this going around, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, I'm not happy, behind everyone's backs. If you've got something to say, say it. It's as simple as that. Get everything out in the open. But also, he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. Or questioning. Now then, more accurately, in the Greek, disputings. Disputings, all right? Uh, The Greek word here is dialogismos, and it means an inward, you know, to reason inwardly is what it means. But Paul here is, is not saying that it's wrong to ask questions. Genuine questioning is to be encouraged, and we do encourage it in this fellowship, all right? Um, we're not talking about sort of like just do as you're told and don't ask questions. That's not what we're talking about here. Question away. The more questioning, the more you'll learn. You don't get any answers if you don't ask questions. No problem there. But what Paul's talking about here are the what you can only call the awkward customers, the awkward customers. He's talking about the uncooperative people, the willful people. Now, these people, all right, who, who question right, or they dispute, their problem isn't actually what you've asked of them. It will look that way. You ask something of them and they'll have a problem with it. But their problem isn't actually what you've asked of them. Their problem, in reality, is that you have dared to require something of them at all. That is their real problem. They feel impinged upon, is he? They feel, wow, this authority thing is going a bit too far now, isn't it? Well, I can't do what I like. Oh, well, that's, 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 that's not what I came to this church for, as it were. No. These people are uncooperative because they're willful in their heart. And as with grumbling, it's a rebellion thing. These are people that, quite honestly, it's the fact that you require something of them that is the problem that they've got. Uh, they're, they're touchy. They're touchy people. You've got to watch yourself with them all the time. They're desperately, easily offended. And you've got it treading on eggshells with them. And Paul says, no, look, absolutely none of this. You know, not daring to open your mouth because they'll be up in the air and it's not fair and they'll be disputing and a thousand arguments... Against everything that you're saying, irrespective of whether what you're saying is biblical or not, they'll just argue against it and they'll resent that you've said it, blah, blah, blah. And Paul says, No, we're not going to have any of that at all. And uh, these are the people who are very quick to say, I've been hurt. Well, what I say is poor sausages. <laughs> the truth of the matter isn't that they've been hurt at all, pride has been hurt. This is the point pride has been hurt with all of us it's part of the process of being part of a church we've all got our touchy points of course we have because we've all got that bit of us that that oh no god's not going to go for that next is it you know we we've always got a bit we're protecting haven't we you know we've always got our united nations forces protecting one bit of us haven't we and and sort of like uh, no 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 it's safe God ain't gonna do anything, you know God ain't gonna do anything about that yet and then he does and he prods you and ouch it hurts and of course at a time like that at a time like that okay uh, it's not God prodding you it's whoever he used you see and so you want to get your own back and how dare you do that and, and you know stuff like that you see God's always prodding us well he's always prodding me at any rate, you see, and uh, so therefore it's no use, you know, being being touchy, and in times like that we say, oh well we're hurt, we're not, our pride is hurt, our pride is hurt, there's a difference between someone being hurt, if you're horrible to someone, you're hurting them, and that's not on, that's not on, but a lot of people, what they say is, I've been desperately hurt, what they mean is, I've been corrected, that's what they mean, (laughs) I've been corrected, I've had something pointed out to me, but I don't accept it, And so in order to justify themselves they got to kick the stink up. And hence you get Paul writing and he says, Now look, you know, do everything without this grumbling and questioning. He says it's rebellion. He says, Lay all that down work at laying that down, bite your tongue when you've done it, say sorry, get it right with God really quickly, and that is, and, and the more you do that, the more Jesus, your new nature, will start to come out of you, work out your own salvation. This is part of what it is. And then down in verse 15, you know, he's saying that you may be blameless um, children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse world. And what Paul's saying here is that, look, All all this stuff, that's what the world's like. That's the sin of the world. He says, we're not supposed to be like that. He says, it's darkness, but we have the light of the world living in us. Jesus lives in us. And what he's saying is, look, he says, people, you can't go out into that world and hold fast the word of life, all right, uh, if you're not living what you're speaking. It's no use being touchy. It's no use having it in for people. It's no use being someone who's impossible to work with. That's that's no good. Because as soon as you open your mouth and say, I'm a Christian, well, the world, the non-Christians who are looking on, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to take no notice of it at all. And the whole point is, people will not listen if what we are speaks louder than what we're saying to them. Can you see? So Paul says, right, be blameless. You know, be blameless, hold fast, the, you know, this word of life. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Work out your own salvation. Why give glory to your Father in heaven? Because the good deeds are your Father in heaven working through you. It's not what you're doing. You're working out God's works in you. And your life is changing. And then in verse 16, he says uh, that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labour in vain. What Paul's saying is that um, if, if, people aren't, if if people aren't coming on to this maturity, then the leadership, you know, they're labouring in vain. What's the point? If Christians aren't growing up, what's the point of leading a church, say, of people for 20 years, and after 20 years, they're still baby Christians, as most churches are? What's the point? Paul says that is to labor in vain. It's crazy. Then, verse 17 and verse 18, he then talks about the fact that for all he knew, he could have been executed the day after. And he's talking about rejoicing. He's talking about rejoicing. Now, can you see here, Paul saying, look, I might die at any minute, rejoice with me, because of how wonderful Jesus is. I might die tomorrow, he says, rejoice with me. Now, what a contrast... To people who do all things with grumbling and questioning. What a contrast to murmuring. What a contrast to disputing. Paul rejoicing, even in the light of the fact that he might possibly have died at any time. And you see, the difference between Paul and the people that he's talking about, all right, um, is quite simply this. The difference is self-obsession or Jesus' obsession. And everything in Philippians, what's it been? Jesus denied himself. He gave it, he humbled himself. It's, it's give up self, forget about self. You're not half as important as you think. Oh, yes, I am. No, you're not. All right. It's forget about yourself. And yet the people that Paul's correcting when he says do all things without murmuring and disputing, those people, what they have in common is they are self-obsessed. They can't stop thinking about themselves. And self-obsession is the exact opposite to growing in the Lord. Can you see the contrast? Here's Paul facing death. Is he self-obsessed? No, he's saying rejoice with me because of how wonderful Jesus is. And yet the people he's written about, what are they? Well, the slightest thing they don't like. Oh, oh how dare they? How? oh. oh obsessed with themselves that's half the problem christianity is the opposite for uh, with being obsessed with yourself and then in verses 19 down to 24 and we'll just do this very very quickly uh you know Paul, paul's saying to them that you know i want to send old timothy to you soon because he wanted to send timothy so timothy could come back to him in prison and see him and give him a first-hand account of how they all are. Because, I mean, Paul, he he longs to catch up on what's been happening. And what he says is he said, I have no one like him who will genuinely be anxious for your welfare. They all look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And Paul there laments the lack of everything he's been talking about, even in Christians who are doing similar work to him. A lot of the time, Paul he found that people in the teams that he was leading, they weren't 100% for the Lord. They were out for their own interests. And often Paul got deserted by, you know, his ministry team would desert him. It'd get too hot for them and they'd be off. Because they were looking after their own interests and not the interests of the Lord and not the interests of the churches. They were still putting themselves first. And then he goes on to say that Timothy uh, worked with him and he says that Timothy worked with me as a son with a father. Now what a beautiful way of working with someone. Here's Paul, a leader of churches. There's Timothy and they, they work together and Paul says it's like father and son. Now, isn't that a far cry from the professionalism you see amongst Christian ministers, so-called today? Isn't it? Isn't that beautiful, like a father and like a son? It's family, not big leaders all getting together. It was intimate. There was—it was, it was a, a far cry from, as I say, this wretched professionalism um, that we've got in in the church today. And uh, and then just just to end, verses 25 through to verse 30, he just sort of. You know He's talking about Epaphroditus, the bloke who bought him the financial gift, and he nearly died on the way. And so Paul says, look, I'm going to send him back to you. He belongs at home. He's been through an awful lot, okay? And uh, if if he's at home with you, he'll be okay. And Paul said, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete your service to me. And Paul says, look, I want you to honor this man said "Look what he didn't put himself first, and it nearly cost him his life." and he said, "I want you to honor such men." And, and it's like, Paul here, was he just taking what Epaphroditus had done for granted? No. I mean he, he felt in his debt. He was thankful, he was grateful. there was no taking it for granted. None of that at all. Paul was extremely grateful for what Epaphroditus done and yet don't we see in the christian life sadly the way that there are christians that when when they get the prod that they are not willing to put right with god the way they suddenly totally forget everything that's been done for them there's no gratitude there's no gratitude that people have helped them served them i mean isn't this the perfect gentleman Epaphroditus had bought Paul the gift at the risk of his own life. And Paul says, look, honor men like that. He says, hold them in esteem. They've earned respect. So you honor them. Paul was just so grateful for what had been done for him. Okay, right. So we leave it there. And then next time we go on to uh, chapter 3. And uh, I do suggest that... uh, for the next study all right do bring seat belts along and fasten them it might upset some people <laughs>